0: It's a disgrace that in a world full of states we have so many stateless persons and a significant number of those are actually children.
1: Welcome to the What's Best for Children's Nationality podcast from the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion.
0: The information that we have uh, is that uh, almost every 10 minutes a child is born
1: stateless. I'm your host Andy Clark. In this series, we'll be focusing on childhood statelessness. Laura van Vaas is the co-director of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. I asked her why the focus on children.
2: Well, childhood statelessness is a really underappreciated issue and it hasn't received a great deal of attention from the child rights community. And so this is one way of spreading the word that the child's right to a nationality is up there and is as important as other child rights that receive more attention.
1: And why now then?
2: Well now is a really good time because there is increased attention for statelessness per se globally but if we don't do something to tackle it among children then we're actually never really going to be making much progress because children who are born stateless grow into adults who have their own children who are born stateless and you can't break the cycle.
1: And there are going to be interviews and there are going to be some case studies again from different countries.
2: Absolutely. We will have case studies from a few countries where the work that is happening on the ground in different ways is really starting to affect change. And we hope that this will inspire others who are facing similar problems in different parts of the world.
1: And what do you want people to get out of this podcast series?
2: I would love it if people, after listening to this podcast series, if they work in child rights, they they start to notice the way in which nationality issues are relevant to their work and to think about it, a little bit of statelessness literacy for how they approach their work. And equally, I would love it if those who are actually already uh, deeply embedded in work on statelessness pay a little bit more attention to the child's right to nationality and how to promote that specifically.
1: You've got me doing some interviews for you, but maybe you can tell people who the first guest is, uh, is going to be.
2: Sure. Uh, the first guest is Benyam, who is a real hero of mine. He's one of the people who has inspired me to pay more attention to childhood statelessness in my own work. And he's really at the forefront of efforts, both in the African region and at UN level, to make sure that this issue doesn't slip off the agenda. Uh,
0: Benyam Dawit Mezmour is my name, um, I'm from Ethiopia. Um, I currently uh, work as an academician. I'm an associate professor at the De Omar Institute for Constitutional Governance and Human Rights uh, at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. But I also serve on the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child. At the African Union, I had the opportunity to chair both committees between 2015 and 2017. Uh, My starting point would probably be that... uh, We don't want to classify statelessness and the right to nationality uh, just as a purely civil and political right. Uh, We also don't want to see it as purely economic, social and cultural right. Uh, I think a strong argument has been made that it's an enabling right. Uh, And and that's applicable to both children and adults. But when you bring it down to the level of children, um, the intergenerational effect that it has... uh, the fact that it doesn't give children the opportunity to, lead, to give life the best that they, that they can actually give it, its implications on uh, the right to education, the right to the highest attainable standard of health, uh, social security, uh, even significant number of protection-related issues uh, from child marriage uh, to FGM (female genital mutilation) to uh, trafficking uh, and a whole range of other related issues. It has significant effect of being. A, it has a very significant effect if a child is a child without a nationality. Now, from a budgeting point of view as well, if you see it from the point of view of governments, how do we budget and how do we actually uh, make uh, programmatic plans uh, without a proper understanding of uh, the number of children that are within our territory and a significant number of uh, these children that are stateless In some of my classes, I often say that it's a disgrace that in a world full of states, we have so many stateless persons, and a significant number of those are actually children.
1: What's your motivation for doing this? What's your personal motivation for for working on the issue of childhood statelessness? A
0: child who is stateless is a child who is more or less deprived of his or her childhood. And the cascading effect that this has from early childhood uh, to adolescent to adulthood is, is a lifelong one. Uh, so I think those are the motivations. Uh, and I, I obviously, uh, over the years, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet a number of sexless children. And I have realized uh, to a significant extent uh, the negative effect that this has uh, on the children, not just only physically, emotionally, but also mentally. I met a girl at a conference Uh, and at that conference she was actually emotionally telling the hardship that she actually had to go through. Her statelessness was created as a result of an administrative error. Uh, When her birth registration documentation uh, was being processed, the nationality of her mother, the nationality of the father, uh, and so they were mixed up. So she was given a nationality of a country that she was not from, and that administrative error Uh, created a whole range of cascading effects. And ultimately, I had the opportunity to invite her to come and share her story uh, with with my postgraduate students at the university. Uh, And uh, she shared her personal story. And when she shared her personal story, uh, she shared a personal story that went beyond herself, uh, that went into stories like uh, her mother was back in her country, uh, her mother was terminally ill, and because she was stateless and didn't have documentation, she couldn't get the opportunity to go and assist her terminally ill mother. Uh, she's registered uh, at a university, but she's not able to access financial support uh, because she doesn't uh, have a, a nationality. Even the university sort of registered uh, her, the school actually registered her in a bit of a, sympathy, a sympathetic way. Uh, and the date that she actually owes, uh, for that, uh, she's not quite sure because of the fact that she's not able to actually uh, work. So uh, these are things that started much early in life, but that continue to have significant effect. And she also mentioned about the fact that it's taken a significant toll, not just only on her physical health, uh, but also on her mental health. You can visibly
1: see that. So the, the effects are absolutely, absolutely significant. Do you think in general the, the issue, childhood statelessness, receives the attention it deserves?
0: The the issue about childhood statelessness is increasingly getting, uh, increasing attention. Uh, I do recall uh, in 2017, for instance, uh, there were a number of pledges that were made. We're hoping that now, 2019, uh, we will have additional pledges uh, that are being made. Uh, But in a way, I I also have a mixed feeling because in the year uh, 2019, uh, in an ideal world, we shouldn't be talking about uh, stateless children. Uh, because the 1954 Convention and the 1961 Convention and the Convention on the Rights of the Child have been here for a long period of time. So on the part of uh, those stateless persons, those stateless children, uh, and those of us uh, who are trying to amplify their voices, uh, there is a sense of urgency. Uh, And I personally don't feel that uh, expecting to end childhood statelessness by the year 2024 is not making an urgency on our side an emergency on the side of the states. And that's what needs to happen? Absolutely. Is, it's, I would often call it a choiceless choice. And it's a win-win situation for everybody.
1: Uh, and what can the committee actually do then to make this happen? We give
0: recommendations to states in terms of uh, ratifying the two statelessness conventions. We give recommendations in terms of withdrawing uh, reservations that they might have uh, relevant for, uh, for the issue of nationality and statelessness within the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, we also comment on state law, uh, domestic law, uh, in terms of whether or not uh, it helps to address statelessness, whether or not it respects the rights of stateless persons, uh, and, and, and so forth. Two critical elements that we provide is obviously, first, the interpretation in terms of the conventional rights of the child, to help states understand what their obligations under Article 7 is. You cannot take it for granted that there is a clear understanding of obligations just simply because they are within the conventional rights of the child. So, uh, whose obligation is it to provide a nationality? What are the measures you need to put in place in terms of the various thematic issues, non-discrimination, gender discrimination, uh, foundlings? Uh, What does it mean to to, to put in place uh, a a solid statelessness determination process? Uh, What are the requirements to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed in domestic legislation to make sure that those countries that are predominantly focused on USOLI, children born on the soil, also have some loopholes to fill for children that are not necessarily born on the soil. And those that are significantly focusing on you sanguine, uh, your ancestors coming from that country, also have some loopholes to address within their legislation uh, to make sure that those that are not necessarily from ancestors from that country Uh, but have a legitimate claim also benefit from that. So it's a sort of technical advice, if you want to call it that, that we actually give in the form of recommendations uh, to states uh, to address this issue. One of the other points that we try to emphasize to states is that statelessness is a reality for some, but almost a possibility for many, if not all. And uh, we try to uh, emphasise the point that in order to make sure that you have every eye and every crossed in your legislative, administrative and other measures in terms of preventing and addressing childhood statelessness, you don't need to have a significant number of stateless children within your territory. It's, a, it's an obligation that all those that have one or zero or one million
1: stateless persons within their
0: territory actually have uh, to address.
1: And is the number of stateless children around the world, is it growing at the moment? Do we know that? You know, it's
0: it's a very important question because one of the shortcomings uh, on the work uh, of statelessness is also the issue about data. So unless and otherwise you have the right measurements, it becomes very difficult to take measures. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, assess whether or not you're progressing or regressing. The information that we have uh, is that uh, almost every 10 minutes a child is born a stateless somewhere in the world. And the extent to which stateless children are being created is much faster and quicker than the extent to which we're actually addressing the issue. And in the last few years, we have been a number of instances, uh, internal displacements, uh, conflicts, climate change-related migration, and and the migration crisis in a a number of corners of the world. Those also have contributed significantly uh, to the global statelessness. population. So in the absence of data, it's very difficult uh, to say uh, we are making progress, even though there are a number of examples, uh, and I can mention some of those as we continue, where uh, country efforts and regional efforts in terms of lawmaking and undertaking programmatic and, and,
1: and uh, different measures to address statelessness uh, is bringing about some change. So what you're saying is we, we don't really know. It's not getting any better, that's what you're saying for sure, uh, but we don't really know if it's getting any worse.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, th- th- that would be my, uh, my assessment. And I think I want to emphasise the point about data. Uh, and unless and otherwise, we have uh, proper statelessness determination processes. Uh, unless and otherwise, we have data. Not just data, but disaggregated data. Because our conversation is about childhood statelessness. And just general statelessness numbers is obviously not going to help us. Unless and otherwise, we have that in a disaggregated manner. Uh, we often say the devil is in the details. Even disaggregated manner also requires sex, age, uh, but also whether or not these children are from minority groups, because the information that we have is about 75% of stateless persons actually come from minorities. Uh, In the last few years, uh, the advocacy work on statelessness, including childhood childhood statelessness, has moved significantly from just being an issue about law and the operation of the law and how uh, gaps in law actually facilitate and create statelessness uh, to discrimination. There are a number of efforts, unfortunately, uh, in some quarters of the world, where deliberate efforts uh, by uh, politicians, decision makers, uh, legislators uh, are actually contributing to uh, discrimination, and a significant part of this discrimination is actually against minorities and indigenous indigenous groups.
1: What about intergenerational statelessness? Can you explain what that is and if what the problem there is? It's it's very close to um, the notion of
0: intergenerational poverty, uh, that uh, the grandparents live in poverty, their children are in poverty, their children's children are in poverty. So intergenerational, it, it continues a cycle of statelessness. It continues a cycle of exclusion. So the grandparents didn't have documentation. They There was no country that actually claimed them as theirs. They were stateless, and they passed that uh, uh, to generations after generations that are coming after them. And it's a very sad state of affair to be in. Uh, the children are being uh, punished for something that they haven't done. Uh, but it ultimately affects their right to life, their right to survival and their right to development. And as I said earlier, it deprives them the opportunity to be children. It deprives them the opportunity to be adults that are included uh, in in a society. Um, and as children, it deprives them the opportunity to give life the best shot they can actually give life. Uh, and we often say that uh, in children's rights, uh, the first 1,000 days are the most critical times uh, for children. Uh, Quite a lot of the make or break things actually happen within those 1,000 days. Uh, If a child doesn't get early childhood development, if a child does not benefit from birth registration, if a child does not get the necessary vaccinations and so forth, these are things that actually continue into adolescence, these are things that continue
1: into adulthood. Which regions and countries are the most challenging at the moment when it comes to childhood uh, statelessness? I think one of the peculiar natures of statelessness including
0: childhood statelessness, is that it's a global issue. There may be some countries that have made significant progress in the last uh, five years. Uh, There may be a few countries that have regressed, uh, and there are a number of countries that have stagnated. Now, one of the things, um, I have a bit of information that has been provided by UNHCR, uh, and if you permit me, I want to take you through some of that data for the benefit of the the, the listeners. There is a 10-year campaign to end statelessness, particularly childhood statelessness, by the year 2024 and quite a number of progress has been made uh, within that campaign and beyond. Uh, For instance, the two conventions, the 1954 and the 1961 conventions on the status of stateless persons and the reduction of statelessness are getting increasing attention, uh, which I think is absolutely positive. There is change in law and policies, and importantly, the resolution of uh, statelessness issues for hundreds of thousands of people in many different regions in the world. Now, since the launch of the campaign, and we will be reaching the midpoint of the 10-year campaign now in October, since the launch of that campaign, we have had about 20 accessions to the two uh, statelessness uh, conventions. And these countries are actually in different parts of the world. And I'll give you examples. For instance, eight states uh, acceded to the 1954 convention, and these eight states are Niger, El Salvador, Turkey, uh, Sierra Leone, Mali, Guinea-Bissau, Chile, and Haiti. So you, you can see the, the extent to which they are from different parts of the world. Twelve uh, countries acceded to the 1961 Convention, and these countries are uh, Argentina, Peru, Belize, Italy, Sierra Leone, Mali, Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso, Luxembourg, Chile, Spain, and Haiti. And again, you can see countries uh, from uh, from Africa, from Europe, from uh, from South America, and, and and so forth. Obviously, the reason why we want states to ratify any international instrument, in this particular case, uh, the 1954 and the 1961 instruments, uh, is obviously to be able to make some change at the domestic level. Uh, They need to influence uh, law policy, but also practice at the domestic level. And there are also, uh, in this regard, I think there are a number of examples. For instance, there are states that have reformed their laws uh, to allow stateless children born in their territory to acquire citizenship. I think the examples, the good examples are Estonia, Armenia, Tajikistan, Luxembourg, Cuba, and Iceland, again, a diverse group of countries. Uh, There are two states, at least, that have introduced safeguards in their nationality laws to grant nationality to children uh, born to nationals abroad, but who are unable to acquire another nationality, practically they would end up being stateless. And these are uh, Cuba and Paraguay. Uh, And I think these are very commendable uh, moves. There are also two states that have removed uh, gender discriminatory provisions in their laws, uh, which had significantly previously contributed to childhood statelessness. Uh, And these are uh, two African countries, Madagascar and Sierra Leone. So... There is quite a lot uh, to celebrate uh, in the last uh, five years since the launch, the launch of the campaign. Uh, there is definitely uh, significant progress. Uh, but I would also be remiss if I don't mention some of the regress uh, that is happening. Uh, in the context of the war on terror, uh, one of the issues that also uh, kept on coming uh, here, at, here in one of the, com- in, in, in the sessions in the conference is that uh, children that are born to ISIS fighters uh, and some of the pushback uh, that is happening. The, the, the issue of deprivation of nationality uh, is coming
1: up uh, very big in that regard, and it's a very important space that we need to watch. And a final thought: looking to the future now, as you say, midway between the push to twenty twenty four to try and end uh, statelessness, which is hugely ambitious, of course, yeah. and when particularly focusing on childhood statelessness, looking, you know, where we are now, how do you see, you know, the next uh, five years? I'm not pessimistic.
0: Um, I'm not uh, overly optimistic. I would classify myself as being realistic. I think there are quite a number of things that those of us who are working on the issue need to pay very close attention to. I've already mentioned the opportunity that is presented by the Sustainable Development Goals and 16.9, but also we need to bring some of the lessons from the MDGs so that we don't repeat the same errors that we made in the the MDGs. the power of persuasion still plays a very important role. Uh, we cannot make the assumption that uh, people and decision makers, and, and role players, and faith-based organizations, and religious leaders, opinion makers actually are aware about this issue. Just to stick to our principles and to keep on parroting what Article Seven of the Convention on the Rights of the Child and what the CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, uh, say, and some of the obligations that states have, uh, is not going. To, it's absolutely critical, absolutely. But it's not going to help us to push the boundaries further. We need to play a very important role in respect to persuasion and the power of persuasion. Thirdly, there is a lot of pushback generally on the human rights agenda, to a certain extent, the child rights agenda and the rise of populism and so forth. They have their own significant effect. And we obviously need to counter that. Um, Don't be surprised to learn that uh, one of the things that is increasingly happening is that the word inclusion is under a lot of pressure. Uh, who would have thought that the word inclusion would be a word that people would quibble with? But that's what's happening. Uh, that that's, uh, in some circumstances, children's rights are being uh, sacrificed at the altar of political expediency, uh, and the issue of statelessness is uh, is also directly relevant to that. So we we need to pay very close uh, attention to that in moving forward. And and probably finally, we need to get the circle bigger. Uh, this should not uh, those people that are uh, working on statelessness should not just be those that are the usual suspects. Uh, you don't need to be uh, an organization which is just focusing on which is focusing on statelessness and nationality to just be working on childhood statelessness those organizations that are working on children's rights need to come to the party those organizations that are working on women's rights need to come to the party uh, labor unions have a very important role face based organizations have a very important role so getting the circle bigger uh, and making sure that This issue is not just the bread and butter of few, but the bread and butter for many uh, is absolutely important. And I would be remiss if I don't mention the role that children themselves play, the role that child human rights defenders play. Uh, we have seen in the context of climate change, uh, you might have heard the stories about Greta from Sweden, who's championing the cause and a number of other uh, Greta's all over the world in relation to uh, climate change. We need to have much more number of Greta's and identify them out there who are actually championing the issue of childhood statelessness. And I think a combination of these things and others will help us to push the boundaries. And as you rightly say, 2024 is just around the corner. Uh, it's ambitious, uh, but it's with ambitious plans uh, and efforts we will actually be able to get the circle bigger.
1: Okay, thank you very much for talking to
0: me. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: Professor Benyam Dawit Mesmore. He is Associate Professor of Law at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. He also serves on the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child. He was Chair of both committees between 2015 and 2017. Benyam, our thanks go to you for joining the podcast. If you want to learn more about childhood statelessness and how you can help eradicate it, please visit our website, institutesi.org. Institutesi.org. You can find there a variety of resources on the issue, including a technical guide on childhood statelessness and the child's right to a nationality. This unpacks the challenges in more detail and provides information on relevant international standards and good practices. And please help us spread the word about the What Works Best for Children's Nationality podcast. You can do it on social media using our hashtags, hashtag NationalityForChildren or the hashtag for inclusive societies. That's hashtag NationalityForChildren or hashtag for inclusive societies. And don't forget to include our Twitter handle, which is at Institute underscore SI. That's at Institute underscore SI. I. And from me, Andy Clark, thank you very much for listening.